Rayanne Sarazen is the author of The Complete Recipe Writing Guide. This book answers all your questions and even those you haven't thought of yet. You will be able to read a recipe better as well as write one better by using this book. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Rayanne Sarazen. She's the author of The Complete Recipe Writing Guide. Rayanne is a registered dietitian, a professional chef, and food writer. She was a former test kitchen director at the Chicago Tribune and a former public relations executive. And there's more. So welcome, Rayanne. Oh, thanks, Liz. I'm so happy to be here today. So there's so many things I want to ask you about. And um, one of the, the things that I think is just the most interesting is that you have written this book, The Complete Recipe Writing Guide. And um, we at the museum, gave a recipe or cookbook writing class. And it was designed for people who wanted to make a family cookbook. So it wasn't like become a professional food writer, here's how to do it kind of thing. It was more either write your own recipes because your children are getting married and you want to give them the family recipes, or maybe there's a, a grandmother or a great aunt or some great cook in the family who's getting elderly and you want to make sure to document those recipes. Or maybe you're going to have a family reunion and everybody is sending in their recipes to you and you're going to put them into some kind of a cookbook to hand out at the family reunion. It was more aimed toward that. And that class had just happened when I met somebody in the airport who had just been to La Dame's Descoffier meeting and I had been there. And she said, oh, well, because we were talking about this. And she mm -hmm. said, I know just the person you need to talk to. And she told me all about you. So perfect timing. <laughs> it was totally perfect timing. So my question to you is what made you decide that this was something that was needed? Well, okay. So I'm going to start by taking you at the beginning, which okay. was about five years ago, just to kind of tee it up. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, who is the publisher of the Complete Recipe mm -hmm. Writing Guide, reached out to me asking if I'd be interested in writing a book proposal on the topic of recipe writing, because there were a lot of dietitians entering this space, creating blogs, working for food companies, working for PR companies, and they felt that a guidebook was needed as a good resource for our membership. And they thought that I would be a good person to submit the proposal. And then ultimately they chose me to write the book. And I think it was due to a, a number of reasons. I have a history of writing. So they knew I could write both from publications, whether it's been the Tribune where I've been published, the Wall Street Journal, different magazines, Better Homes and Gardens. They knew that I had the educational background as a dietitian. 
And also I went to culinary school and I have work experience for over 20 years of being in the industry as a clinical dietitian working with recipes, as a food writer working as recipes and publishing, and also restaurant experience working with recipes. I was lucky enough, the one restaurant that everyone always seems to know based on age is Charlie Trotter's, but I think some of the younger generation doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't resonate as anything any anything of a great importance. But so they, I had this background, so they came to me. However, with that said, I really felt like it resonated because I believe in the documentation of recipes and accuracy. And I really felt when I started out in my career, there really wasn't a, a book to turn to that was all encompassing. I think we probably together know the few recipe writing books out there, but they were written so long ago. And I thought this is my ability to sort of give back, to pay forward, to give people who are starting out a resource where they can really up their skills or start at a higher level, or even for different longtime food professionals, look at it from a nutrition perspective, since health and wellness is written about so much, I felt I could really give the standards and a resource book for them too. So it wasn't something that I came up with on my own, but I jumped at it and was super happy that they accepted my proposal. Well, I love this book because as we were teaching this and putting together a class for writing a cookbook for your family, it was really a kind of a family cookbook kind of class we were looking at all the guides and yours didn't exist yet, or it had just that very second come out. Just came out. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, we, we missed you by about six weeks or two months. I mean, it was really, really just on the cusp there, but we were looking at the older books and I think you're right because when I saw yours, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is head and shoulders above the other ones. Partially, I think, because some of the things that you cover weren't even issues at the time that those cookbook right. writing, I mean, those recipe writing guides were written. But also, there's just something so comprehensive about this and the importance of writing recipes that, especially from a nutrition standpoint, are, are important for somebody who might be diabetic or have certain kinds of food sensitivities or, or whatever. And I love the way you write about substitutions and other things that these other recipe guides really didn't talk about that sort of thing, because this has a different, almost a, a different motivation. It's, yeah. it's really exciting. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's it's funny. You can see, well, we're, we're, we can see each other, but yes. this book is big. It is. Oh, yes. Yeah. so big. And I have I, it right here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to say it was one of these things that the book grew, though. It's, one, it's a topic that, you know, you think about recipes and they seem so simple, right? Like mm -hmm. what's so difficult about a recipe, but there's so much nuance that goes on and something that, for example, started out as just three chapters on recipe development turned into six chapters. Uh -huh. And each chapter within the book, you really could write a whole entire book on, you know, mm -hmm. whether mm -hmm. the first chapter, just basic recipe development, the second chapter on health and wellness, the third chapter on plant-based recipe development the chapter on modifying fat, sodium, and sugar in recipe development, and then the chapter, which of course, food allergies and intolerances could be a whole book, you know, developing recipes for celiac disease and FODMAP could be its own book. 
And then as you mentioned, there's a whole book on recipe writing that was written many years ago. And we've got a solid chapter that, you know, really gives you everything you need to know within a chapter versus a book. And the same for recipe testing, the nutrition analysis chapter. And of course, today, the visual aspect of recipes is so right. important. Right. That really didn't exist back then to talk about food styling, photography, and video exactly. like this book. Right, right. No, it, it's it's incredibly comprehensive and a fabulous resource. I think everybody should have one on their shelves if they're in the food industry, whether they write recipes or not, because you're reading recipes all the time, even if you're not writing them. And this book gives you yet another resource to read a recipe more intelligently than you might have. So I, yeah. I think of it as a as a two-way thing, not only how to write the recipe, but also how to read the recipe, which brings me to another issue. So okay. I tell you, all right, I have five books written. One of them is the cookbook. Writing that cookbook was the hardest thing I have ever done. And I swore that I would never write another cookbook. I'll write history books. I'll do all kinds of other kinds of writing, but do not make me write a cookbook. Okay, this is my problem. I wrote a cookbook about growing up in, it's called Nana's Creole Italian Table, and it's about Sicilian New Orleans and the food that was brought over by the Sicilians, huge number, almost 100,000 came at the turn of the 20th century to New Orleans directly. And of course, they formed a community because there were so many of them. And I I was half, I grew up half Sicilian. So we began immersed in all of that, but also still very New Orleanian because I was only half, you know. I feel like we should be talking about Christmas coming up, but anyway, okay, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the, the problem was growing up with my grandmother, who was a fabulous cook and who was one of those people who allowed you to play in the kitchen and just make a mess and she didn't worry about it or anything like that. Whereas my mother was like, I'm cooking, get out of the kitchen because mm. you, I'm, you know, it's just the efficiency of getting it done kind of thing. And anyway, my grandmother never measured anything. Never. She never... And she tasted all the time she was cooking because she would say to you things like, so these tomatoes are sweeter than a different crop of tomatoes. And so you're, to make it taste right, you you have a sweet tomato. But if you if you were making a big tomato sauce with fresh tomatoes and those tomatoes were not as sweet, she had a way to fix that so that it tasted right. And she said, you can't, and she said it just like this, you can't ever follow a written recipe. All those people who give you a written recipe are deluding themselves because- mm actual food product does not taste the same every time. So to get to the to the flavor that you want, you have to be able to adjust. So right. you're, you know. But there's another side to your grandmother's <laughs> comments, right? That I, there there is two sides. I mean, recipes serve different purposes, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, you know, sort of acknowledging what she's saying about, well, you really can't have a recipe because as she is right, tomatoes in season taste different out of season. Peppers mm -hmm. are either hot or not quite as hot. The 
appliances yeah, I mean, that you stronger. use, mm-hmm. right? The garlic is different. Your mm-hmm. appliance, your stove, which I can see is different than my stove. It mm-hmm. is just different. But I would argue though that, you know, I think you still can give a range. You can't sure. adjust somebody's palate. Mm-hmm. You can't, I can't make what your grandmother made exactly because I wasn't there tasting it. And I think that the documentation of recipes is a really wonderful and cherished treasure that you can do for your family. Because if your elder is alive and you can go in the kitchen with them and you watch them and you document what they do is they throw in this or move something temporarily off the heat to bring the pan down. You're there to witness that and to then be able to translate that act of cooking into words. And I think that one thing that I feel like I learned when I was reading this book is that there's one thing to know something and then there's another thing to write about it. And I think the writing of it helped clarify a lot of things for my own self. And that process that maybe like your grandmother would do so quickly and unknowingly I think can be captured into words. And no, mm-hmm. you can't capture the nuance of a, of ingredient by season and appliances, the differences. But I think that if you're there tasting what she created, you can then adjust to a modern day version that often tomatoes don't taste like they're from the farm, mm-hmm. for an example. You know, so right. I, I'm a big believer in, you know, not to go off topic, but I, I love the history of recipes and mm-hmm the ability to document it. And I think some sort of documentation has to happen or otherwise we lose the heritage of where we come from. So, you know, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I can go on and on and on and on. I I, I I love this topic, which has nothing exactly (laughs) to do with how to write a recipe, but, you know, recipes tell a story, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. capturing that story. And I don't know. I, I just think that, you know, for people who clearly, even many professionals that I am, colleagues with will say that, you know, well, recipes, we have to get away from recipes. They just, we have to stop that, Rayanne. And I guess I really, really believe that, you know, recipes can serve different purposes. They can be a source of inspiration. They can be something that generates ideas, Mm -hmm. but also recipes can serve as an educational tool. And they then serve a purpose for us to eat healthier and even learn how to cook. So I can go on a tangent on that. They don't have to be this. They don't have to meet the same need for all of us. Right. Well, and what I wound up doing was, you know, if I needed dried oregano, I would put the right amount in my hand and then I would measure from my hand before I put it into the pot. Things like that, because that was the only way I could capture it. I have my, I don't actually have it anymore, but because it broke, but my grandmother used to have a teacup because she never gave anything. She never threw anything away. And it had broken, the handle had broken off and that had become her measuring cup. Oh yeah. She would tell you three cups of something. She did not mean three measuring cups. She meant her measuring cup. And so then I would remeasure and all of that sort of thing so that I could just duplicate the recipe. But then what I wound up doing was I added all kinds of information, like taste it. And if it doesn't taste sweet enough for you, then do this. My grandmother believed that it was a sin to put sugar directly into your tomato sauce. Mm. And what she would do was she would grate a a carrot into the tomato sauce. Hmm. because She thought that there was no depth of flavor. Sugar is only sweet. It had no complexity or anything. 
And and now you could do things with sugar. She could make caramel and all that. But it wasn't that she didn't think sugar had its place, but she didn't think that it gave you any depth of flavor and nuances of sweetness or anything. So if if your tomato sauce wasn't sweet enough because the tomatoes were not ripe enough or it was the wrong season or whatever, she would grate carrots in and she'd wait about 15 or 20 minutes and then she'd taste it again and see if it needed another carrot. And that's the way she made it sweet because she thought that just sugar made it sweet, but there was no flavor, you know, it, so. Yeah. And I think I, what I love about that story is the story of the carrot and the relation to tomato (laughs) sauce and the sugar. I've never tried that technique, but that makes it unique and that makes it her recipe and now your recipe. And that's, what's really beautiful about it. And, and also it's probably healthier for you to have a carrot grated in than just straight sugar at the same time, you know, not a big deal, but I was going to say, yeah, I, I always say that recipes should lead with flavor and whatever amount that is. And, you know, it would be an insignificant amount for that dish or for the week, but yeah, that, that can lead me down another topic of conversation. (laughs) (laughs) The, The exaggeration of nutrition claims and how that then translates into recipes that wind up being just so confusing for the consumer. So I like to make things simple. But I will say that the problem that I have developed with recipes because of this training from my grandmother is that I I see recipes as as suggestions. And yes. and so I did one time I, I was uh I was a judge in a recipe contest. That's fun. And, yeah, it was fun. And all of us who were judges had to make two of the recipe so that we could all sit down together and taste them. Mm -hmm. And so you, you really had to obey the recipe without any changes because you were, you were testing that recipe. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done is to actually measure everything and try to make it exactly like the recipe. And one of the things that I was assigned just randomly where someone said a half a cup of salt instead of a half a teaspoon or something. Mm. They just made an editorial error. Yeah. Editorial error. So I made it with a half a cup of salt. It was awful, but, Mm. uh, and I just, I wanted to correct it so much because I knew that it was just that kind of sort of mistake, but you know, you can't do that. You have to do it the way it's written. Yeah. And I think that it brings up something kind of interesting, which is that recipes have a whole workflow and there's the development, there's the writing, the editing, the testing, which you just started talking about. Uh-huh. Testing is so different than cooking and it's yes. much different than recipe development because I'm like you in many ways, surprisingly, you know, it depends on if I'm cooking dinner, I'm doing exactly as you said, I don't want to measure. Right. But if I'm testing a recipe or if I'm developing a recipe, I can be very exact. And that idea of testing is a completely different skill set because it really requires a lot of focus and a lot of attention to everything that the recipe is instructing you to say. Mm-hmm. And one one thing that I would just sort of comment, just funny about the half of a cup, but when I've been hired out to do recipe testing projects in the past, um, I, you know, I always ask the question, well, how much do you want me to fix it along the way? <laughs> 
because, you know, if a recipe and ingredients are very expensive, I'm not going to do something that I know is very much probably an editorial error or an error that just is an error, you right. know, that I, I'm not sure if I can give a good example, but I, I think that the testing is is very exact. And I, when I test recipes, I have to actually concentrate where sometimes when I'm cooking, I'm just sort of in a different state of mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, I definitely think that's, that's, that's true. It's, it's kind of a, an interesting combination of all of those things. One of the things though, that I really appreciated about this book was the, the kinds of substitutions that you made so that people would have, it's not just the one-to-one -one thing that you talk about, but just the idea of giving you license to change the recipe, to make it the way you need it to be. And, and that a person doesn't necessarily, let's say they have a celiac disease or something, they don't have to just say, I can't make that. I can't. Right. Eat oh that. yeah. No, they, they can, they can have the actual permission to change the recipe without having to say, oh, I can only use celiac recipes, but right. have the, the confidence to go ahead and make it a different way. I really thought that you kind of gave people permission to do that, which a lot of times people don't feel that they have. And I, I thought that was really good. Yeah, thank you. I mean, in the Complete Recipe Writing Guide, the information on the nutrition is so, I think, very thorough and really does give people who are food writers who want to develop recipes to accompany their story a lot of the information that they need to know that they're being accurate. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what's really important here because I think for people who have nutrition challenges, which I think so many people do today, it really allows you to understand that say you're going to be using a gluten-free substitution for like Thanksgiving, which we just had, or the upcoming holidays. And you really want to understand, well, how do you, but I don't use flour to, to dip my chicken breasts in, or if I'm not going to use flour to make a roux, to make a gravy, you know, how do you do it? What are the best things? And I think the book really just gives many different choices and many different reasons to understand why one works slightly different than another. So if you're going to develop a recipe for that population, you know, you're being accurate and you're also understanding the functionality of the ingredients to then be able to change it, to make it really work. Right. And I don't know, I, I just think it's, it's really important to give the guidelines. And I think that's what I feel was, you know, oftentimes missing for people who recipe develop is that, you know, what does healthy mean? You know, what, well, what is, you know, your doctor tell, tells you we'll eat less sodium. Well, what's less and what is a, you know, a, a sodium reduced recipe look like or a healthy recipe for cardiac disease? I don't know. I, I just, I just found that the more I started writing, the more I found I had questions and wanted to clarify for the person who's going to use this book. Yeah. Well, you can tell, I, I mean, it's, it's just full of all kinds of really great information. And what? if I can say though, one oh. thing, Liz, I really want to give credit to all the people who also contributed. The book was peer reviewed. So every chapter had anywhere from three to nine professional reviewers, oh to my add, gosh. which was a long process, which is why mm -hmm. the book took so long to do. And a lot of people were so giving thought, you know, Rayanne, add this, you know, I, I think that if you don't include this, you're going to be, you know, incomplete. Mm -hmm. You know, people gave their differing opinions. And so it really tapped into other professionals, whether it was the topic of cultural appropriation, which, which was oftentimes 
a difficult one, especially as I was writing it during this period of time, to nutrition analysis and the different best practices that people in food companies or magazines or people who have websites and what their plugin is that they use. So I really tapped into others as well. And I curated what I felt was the best and also using my own knowledge. So it's not just my background and experience and wisdom. It's really of everyone who gave their time so generously. Yeah, well, that's that's really that's really wonderful. But the complete book is just really fabulous. I I do want to tell you about a my own cultural experience with recipes. So, of course, in Louisiana and in New Orleans, we have a lot of in book recipes and and dishes that are kind of known as ours. You know, whether it's red beans and rice or some kinds of gumbo. So. I was a last minute substitute for a a chef who was supposed to go to this culinary school in France to do some demonstrations and to cook with them because in this town where the culinary school was, they were having a, um, a musical festival, a music festival. And that particular year, their topic was the music of New Orleans. So they Mm. wanted someone who was a chef from New Orleans to come to the culinary school. And the culinary school was going to do all these big gumbos and dinners and whatever that were, were accompaniments of the festival. Well, he got into this horrible car crash and was Mm. not able to go. And the consul called me like at the very last minute, like three or two days before and said, can you go? Well, of course, I just kind of have passport, will travel kind of person. (laughs) So I said, sure, I'm going. And so I went and the students and the faculty had gone online, gotten Louisiana-based recipes, not a more you know popular or, or larger recipe because they wanted to be authentic. And they had made everything so that when I got there, I could approve it. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that my face showed that what they had done was totally wrong. I mean, oh, no. it was just so, <laughs> so wrong. It was unbelievable. And so they went through it with me. They had the recipe in English side by side with how they had translated it into French and how they had actually done every single thing that it said in the recipe. And that's when I realized recipes are so cultural. Mm. So first of all, the little header on the recipe said, this is a, you know, a gumbo and this was a seafood gumbo. This gumbo is slightly thick, like, but, but it's still a soup. So in France, if it's a soup, it's generally like a soup de poisson is going to be emulsified so that mm-hmm. everything is exactly the same. Every t- every spoonful is going to be the same without big chunks of anything in it. But gumbo, because the gumbo said it was a soup, they decided that it needed to be emulsified. Mm-hmm. And that's cultural practice. Right. And, and of course, our gumbo is not emulsified. And every every bite is a little bit different. And everything is clearly identifiable if you look at the gumbo. So that was a mess, number one. Number two, there's a, a roux. Now, the roux instructions 
in the recipe that they copied said something like, make a roux that's between peanut butter and a light roast coffee. And that was to describe the color that you were supposed to get on the, on the flour. Mm -hmm. Well, they just didn't believe in it. So they totally rejected that. And so their roux was just cooked enough to take the raw flavor of the flour away. And then you just had a white roux, basically a Mm. black roux. Well, so the color of the gumbo was totally wrong. And then once they had emulsified it, it was kind of looking like paste with, I mean, it was just awful. Okay. Did you instruct them that they can't really call their soup this gumbo (laughs) for starters? (laughs) When they saw my face, when I looked at it, I'm sure they just, that was all it took, you know? Right. And so they said, okay, you're going to make it. So I said, okay. So the next morning, you know, we all got together. I'm in the kitchen and they're all standing behind me and I'm making the roux and it's getting darker and darker and darker. And I can hear all these little French voices going, oh, la la, oh, la la. Mm, As mm. It's just getting, and it, of course, it's toasty smelling. And oh, sure. It gets darker and darker. And so the, the smell is getting to the point where they're like afraid it's already burned. And I'm going, it's not burned. It's not burned. But you were there to give them a Louisiana education. That's right. But also, instead of calling cayenne, cayenne, we usually call it red pepper. So the Mm -hmm. recipe said red pepper. And Mm -hmm. to them, cayenne is cayenne, not red pepper. And so they had made like a, a, a mix of spices using pink Sichuan peppercorns, Mm. because that was the closest thing they could think of as red pepper. Right. So, I mean, it was just full of all of, of these of different errors. Yeah. Yes, yes, Interpretations. Yes. 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 Which kind of goes back to the exactitude of recipes, well, right? This is, this is true. This <laughs> with is substitutions true. given in the head note or within the note section at the end. And then we in Louisiana, or especially in New Orleans, we call scallions shallots. Mm. Don't ask me why, but we do. And of course, I know the difference between a scallion and a shallot, but my mother called them shallots. She didn't call them scallions. Or- I, I, I don't think I knew that. I always know green onions and scallions and people write them differently in recipes. I've never heard it as a shallot. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that it's older. I don't think people do it as much as they used to. But if you look at recipes from the 1950s and early 60s, it will say shallot and it means green pepper. Mm. I mean, a green onion or, or scallion. And you can tell because they talk about, you know, separate the whites from the greens and chop it up. And they use it the way you would use a scallion, but they call it a shallot. I have no idea why that is. I, I speculate that shallots were not available everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so people were at, at grocery stores in those days. And so you were using a green onion or a scallion in place of the shallot because it had a milder flavor than say a yellow onion or something. Mm-hmm. And so then they started to just call them shallots because they were used like a shallot. But you know what I find interesting? Uh, there's so many interesting parts of the story you just shared, but one of which is you can look at a recipe and it says so much about the era or the time 
of which it was created. And that story is a perfect example, which I didn't know in the 50s, that scallion versus shallot and sort of where that recipe would have been marked for that time period in that part of our country. And I find that sort of a fascinating also part of recipes, which is not talked about in the book, but the idea that how recipes itself have so much cultural history and identity and how foods were used and even the nutrition and messages that are embedded in recipes of this being a curative sort of soup that you could have, the assumptions of what the cook knows by how the recipe is written. You know, you can really understand if it's the 18th century, 20th or 19th, 20th, and you can kind of really get an idea of what did people as a home cook know how to do? And which is maybe even today, how recipes are written as well. We can really analyze, do people know how to cook? And maybe the backlash about, you know, the no recipe recipe fits a group of people, but I, I don't know. I think that even speaking of being, you know, traveling, I just got back from Vietnam and little jet lag. But the point on that is, is that, you know, you learn so much from the people who live it and from where it comes from. And I think that the younger generation there is losing a lot of the foodways and the documentation of recipes in the way that the older generations cooked. And I think it's an interesting thing to see globally mm-hmm. how how we're eating is changing and what's happening to cooking and then the documentation, which is how things are passed on and shared. I just find fascinating. Yeah, it really, it really is. Well, Rayanne, we are out of time. And I think that oh you my. I don't talking I, forever. I could, I could talk forever about the history of recipes, the importance of I think I need to come and do a workshop with you next year for the food right for your people who want to create cookbooks, because this book is for food professionals, but it's also for people who really want to learn how to document recipes. It, mm-hmm you know, new food content creators, home cooks. It's really something that is a fabulous resource. And in terms of how people can get the book, one, you could get it through the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Eat Right store. They sell the book directly or you can go at Amazon or Barnes and Noble and it makes a great holiday gift, but it really is not even a holiday gift. It's really something, it's just a guidebook to have that really is a great resource and you have to almost check it out to really believe me. <laughs> oh, it, it really, it really is. I mean, I, I have checked it out and I can tell you that it, even the recipes that are in the book are such great illustrations of what it is you're talking about in the various chapters. It's a really, really fabulous resource. And I think anybody who, who even just loves cookbooks should have one because it will help them interpret the recipes that they're seeing or are looking at, whether they're writing their own recipes or not. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been so much fun to talk to you today. I could see that whatever our time was, it wasn't adequate. We could have been on for much longer. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me today, Liz. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, for more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.